Good morning, Blackman. Good morning. Beautiful day to be here. You have picked the day where we have almost the strangest text in the Bible, so welcome. Uh, in a few minutes, we're going to be looking at the last three chapters of the book of Judges. This is a dream of mine, I will be honest, to start the Christmas season with the last three chapters of the book of Judges. So I'm having a dream come true today. I don't know if it will be that for you. But you can go ahead and turn there in your Bible by looking at a story that commentators have called one of the most shocking episodes in the history of God's people. I believe it could be the darkest story in the Bible. And because, so, yay! And because of that, it helps us answer the question, why do we need Christmas? So the Bible is, you wouldn't watch it. Uh, On that note, your kids are here, I'm aware. Uh, so ma- encourage them to really go for the sticker packs or the coloring boards, whatever it is that we do today. And I am going to try to share this in a way that will minimize the questions you have to answer on the way home. Um, but where I fail in that, please give mercy. Okay. I want to go ahead and tell you what we're going to see. These three chapters of Judges are an, intent- an intense depiction of the reality that we as human beings are very bad at taking care of ourselves. The Bible consistently from the beginning to the end teaches that we have one prominent skill and that skill is... So as we get into this story of destruction that we're going to see in the Israelites in the ancient Middle East, let me set it up by telling a story of destruction concerning the Hiltabitals in Franklin, Tennessee. So about eight or nine years ago, my wife and I bought a townhome in Franklin. We loved it, but here's the thing. Nobody there. Nobody took care of this home for about 100 days, and a, and a couple of things happened in that 100-day window, a couple of destructive things. The first is no one used the dishwasher for 100 days. We discovered via the aroma that mold, and in this house, this townhome, the kitchen was on the second floor. I didn't have anything, no, I didn't know how I was going to get this broken, sloshy, moldy dishwasher down the stairs without coating the house in mold. So I threw it out the second story window of the kitchen. <laughs> so that's one, one thing. The second problem showed up the second night we lived there. Scarlett and I were in the, li- we were in the living room talking. She was facing the kitchen. All of a sudden, she jumped on the chair. She shrieked. She started pointing because she had seen a mouse. I grabbed the broom. I chased it back and forth across the kitchen. Alas, it successfully eluded me. As I put the broom down and walked back into the living room, she's grabbed her purse and sprinted to the car to get mousetraps. So I then, as soon as she got them home, I set up mousetraps in the kitchen while all the girls hung out upstairs. And it wasn't 20 minutes before I heard, and we had dead mouse number one. Dead mouse number one. Because in the first 48 hours we lived there, we killed three mice in that exact same spot. He taken care of that house. And mice and mold moved in. That home, that townhome was already headed down the path of destruction. If left to itself long enough, right, that house would have gotten to a point where it was no longer livable. The mice, the mold, the weather, the whatever else would have destroyed that home. The house can't take care of itself. Church, the same thing is true of the Christian heart. Oh, it's a cutie. Sorry, I know it's tough subject matter today, bud. It's tough. 
We cannot lead ourselves. Listen, every person, every family, every nation, the world itself, if left to itself, ends up in ruins. I mean, look at our world right now and tell me I'm wrong. It's crazy. The Bible says in 1 Peter that we are like sheep that go astray. Ephesians 2, Paul says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Proverbs 16 says there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. That's a 2023 Bible verse right there. It's, it's clear from human history and from God's word that we humans are naturally broken people and our natural tendency is to follow our broken desires to our demise. Such good news this morning, but we have to, it's still true. We have to embrace, we need to embrace this reality from God's word today. Many of you already have, I know. You, if you have a relationship with God through Jesus, it's because you've already acknowledged your brokenness. If you have a relationship with God through Jesus, you know this, but we still need to remember that we tend to walk on our own toward desires that ruin hearts and lives. We need to see that, and then 30 minutes from now, but then we get to embrace the bright hope of Jesus on the other side of that need. So that's the reality to embrace. We're going to look at the last three chapters of Judges, and just two points from these three chapters. But I want us to start by reading the first verse and the last verse from the story because just those two verses alone powerfully and very clearly convey the central point of this narrative. So let's read Judges 19 verse 1 right next to Judges 21 verse 25. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, by the way, today. So if you'd like, you could follow along with us on the screen. Judges 19:1. this dark story starts this way. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a Levite staying in a remote part of the hill country of Ephraim acquired a woman from Bethlehem in Judah as his concubine. So the events of the next three chapters are, are, are set in motion by this Levite getting a con out of control from that point right there. It's crazy. But then the story finishes in chapter 21, verse 25, which says, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So did you see that? In those days when there was no king in Israel, then we're going to see three chapters full of death days. There was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. So this is an example of sometimes the Bible is really clear about the point that it's trying to make. The story begins and ends with the exact same phrase, the exact same thought. So here's point one for us today. And if you were in Sunday school this morning, you already know this. We need a king. You need a king. I need a king. We need a king. So let me walk you through this story. I'm going to walk us through to help us see with fresh eyes, how desperately we need someone to lead us, someone to take care of us. And something inside of some of you is pushing against, nobody needs to lead me, nobody takes, needs to take care of me. There was no king in Israel, and people did what was right in their own eyes. So let's start with that. Verse 1, in those days, 
when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. So as we said, our story starts with the Levite taking this concubine and we already see the people are uh, doing what seems right to them. A concubine is basically a backup wife. A concubine is like if a married man had a girlfriend who was actually part of the family. So chapter 19 of Judges focuses on the events surrounding this Levite's concubine. And so that I don't read you three chapters of Judges, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you some parts of the story. And then we will read the most shocking parts or the most important parts together. So the first thing that happens is this concubine leaves the Levite. Probably good for her, but he decides to follow her. They stop in a city called Gibeah of the tribe of Benjamin. You guys are going to a little bit of Old Testament history school today, so just, you got to track with me the whole time. It'll pay off in the end. Gibeah was of the tribe of Benjamin, a city of the tribe of Benjamin. If you remember from the Old Testament, the tribe of Benjamin, you've heard before because God's Old Testament people, Israel, were divided into 12 tribes. Benjamin is one of those 12 tribes. This, this will be very important to the story in a minute. So the Levite and the concubine stop in the Benjaminite city of, of Gibeah. Unfortunately, Gibeah is basically a copy of the city of Sodom that God destroyed by fire in Abraham's time. And I'm trying to say every largely bent toward the type of immorality in Sodom. Read between the lines. And that was tied to the worship of idols. So a man from the tribe of, of, of Levi and his concubine show up in Sodom 2.0 and an old man takes them into the house. You guys with me so far? You're great. You're doing great class. And this is where you have to start bracing yourself because it starts getting very difficult. As they were making merry, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surround the house, beating down the door, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. If that's a rated R knowing. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do, what, <laughs> do with them what seems good to you. There's that phrase again. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the man would not listen to them. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. I'm not going to read the next sentence out loud. So if y'all just will read that uh, on your own. And as the dawn, the, the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, a woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was. It's just a heartbreaking, it's a heartbreaking scene. And we find out in a couple of verses later that she's dead. So we have people, and now all of a sudden it gets real, right? We have people doing what is right in their own eyes. And what is right in their own eyes is that. The Levite man sent his backup wife out to the men of Gibeah, and they assaulted her in that way and left her dead on the doorstep. That's just the beginning. Let's try to say this carefully, because the story continues... The Levite takes the body of his concubine and he dismembers her in 12 sections and sends 
one section to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's ludicrous. And he does this as a way of calling the tribes together to exact vengeance on the men of Gibeah. So all of the 12 tribes come together except the tribe of Benjamin because Benjamin chose to support its city, Gibeah. That takes us into chapter 20. And in chapter 20, the stakes rise significantly. You still don't believe where we're headed. The 11, 11 of the 12 tribes of Israel decide they are going to destroy the city of Gibeah. Benjamin decides to oppose them. So y'all are still with me to this point? Want to hear you say yes? Thank you so much. So the, the, the 11 tribes, they do march. Benjamin does defend, and the first day, 22,000 Israelites are killed. 22,000. That may not be 21,999 more deceased in chapter 20. And then under, undeterred, Israel attacks again the next day, and 18,000 soldiers are killed. Remember, this is Israel attacking Israel. This is 40,000 now dead in two days of civil war between God's people. We got to try something different. This just throwing bodies at each other isn't working. And it worked this time, so we're going to pick up and read the end of the civil war, which is not the end of the story. This is verse 42 of chapter 20. Therefore they, referring to the soldiers of Benjamin, they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. The, the ambush worked. They tried to get away. They could not get away. And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst, surrounding the Benjaminites. They pursued them and trod them down from Nohah as far as opposite Gibeah. That's where we started on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor, and they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon. 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways, and they were pursued hard to get them, and 2,000 men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. Listen to this. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the Rock of Ramon and remained at the Rock of Ramon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city the men, the beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. I forgot to tell you guys, happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> happy Thanksgiving. In addition to the 40,000, there's now 25,000 more men of Benjamin dead. But make sure you caught that last part. Then the, they systematically destroyed the people and the cities of the tribe of Benjamin. It's essentially a case of genocide. One of the 12 tribes of Israel, if you're, if you're paying attention, one of the 12 tribes of Israel is now left with 600 men and no women. And this is where the story moves into chapter 21. And the, the people of Israel, the, other, the 12 tribes, they're now uh, in despair because they realize they've basically wiped a part of their, their, their heritage off of the earth. Because what we find out in chapter 21 is that when they were outraged over the actions of the men at Gibeah, they made a vow that they would not allow their daughters to marry the men of Benjamin. So now there's 600 men, there's no women. This, how is this tribe of Israel, how is this part of the family of God going to continue 
The story concludes as Israel decides to save. They say, okay, well, we did a bad thing. This civil war cost ten, scores of thousands of lives. The tribe of Benjamin is almost gone, so they decide to save the tribe of Benjamin by going to war with more destruction. That still leaves them 200 wives short. Guess how they got the last 200 wives for the last 200 men of Benjamin? They kidnapped them. God's people kidnapped wives. It's just unreal. I'm going to pick up there and finish the story in chapter 21. This is verse verse number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. There it is. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and they were the darkest days of the people of God in the Old Testament. We need a king. This, this story, we need a king. We can't care for ourselves. We can't lead our own hearts. In that story, we see polygamy, murder, dismemberment, civil war, kidnapping, genocide. It's absolutely insane. It's hard to believe. And maybe you're thinking, listen, I know I'm messed up, but I'm never going to be a part of a list like that. You might be thinking that. You might be wrong. You might be wrong. I think anybody is capable of anything. I also know that it doesn't matter. We, do we need concubines and kidnapping and civil war to destroy ourselves? Let's be honest. We're capable of those things. But how many people have we seen destroy our lives with all kinds of other desires? Greed can destroy you. Lust can destroy you. Addiction, insecurity can destroy you. The how is nation. Romans 3 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. All have turned away and become worthless. There is no one who does good. Things are going to get a whole lot happier in a moment. But the message at the end of Judges is that if we don't have a king, if we don't have a ruler, if we don't have a rescuer, we will create ways to crush ourselves. Like the Israelites, we will follow our own hearts to destruction. We need a king. Such a dark story. And here's what's so crazy. That's the end of the book of Judges. That's the very, the first time I realized this, blew me away. That's the very last line of an entire book of the Bible. There was no king in Israel, and the people did what was right in their own eyes, and there was murder and war, destruction and pain like that. But that brings us to point number two. First, from this story, we see that we need a king. But second, we need to turn the page. We need to turn the page. The end of Judges reminds me of a few months ago. I was reading a sci-fi thriller, and I texted him, I hate this. 
I wish I had never started reading it. And he texted back, keep reading, you're going to like it. Then a main character died. And I texted him, Claire died, this is the worst. And he texted back, Brandon, just let yourself go on the journey. The ending blew my mind. The same thing is true with the Bible. The book of Judges ends in an undeniably dark place. But listen, when you read the Bible and something seems hopeless, that means you just need to turn the page. The end of Judges is awful. It's depressing. The people led themselves to destruction. They needed a king. There was no king. There was no hope. So we need to turn the page. So we're going to do that. If you turn the page from the end of Judges, you get to the book of Ruth. You read the story of a kinsman redeemer. No king. So we turn the page again. Then you get to 1 Samuel. Guess what happens in 1 Samuel? The nation of Israel actually gets their first king. His name is Saul. But if you know much about the Old Testament, you know he was not a very good king. He was weak. He could not lead his people to wholeness. He could not lead them to victory, to prosperity. The Lord rejected him. So we keep turning the page, and oh my goodness, King David arrives. And King David was a king after God's own heart, but he was also an adulterer and a murderer. And his reign was filled with grief and war. So we turn the page, and it's King Solomon. King Solomon was a king of great wisdom, but he was also a king of a great number of wives who led him to worship other gods. And God decided he would not have that. He brought adversity into the kingdom. He took the throne from Solomon. But the people need a king, so we need to keep turning the page. And here's why I t- where I tell you that there were about 40 more kings of the people of Israel, and it would take a very long time to go through every one of our stories. So here's what I did. I found a chart that listed all of them and whether or not the Bible said they did evil or they did right in the eyes of the Lord. You who have read the Old Testament, you know, you, and they did evil. They did right, whatever. This is going to help us turn the page a little faster. Now, you need to know, this is very important, after the reign of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel, got, God's people got so dysfunctional that it actually split into two kingdoms. The next king, Israel and Judah, right? The next king on the Israel side was Jeroboam, and he did evil. Then Nadab did evil. Then Bashad did evil, Allah did evil, Zimri did evil, Omri did evil, Ahab did evil, Ahaziah did evil, Jehoraham did evil. <laughs> then Jehoahaz did evil, Joash did evil, Jeroboam II did evil, Zechariah did evil, Shalom did evil, Menahem did evil, Pekahiah did evil, Pekah did evil, Hosea did evil. Then the kingdom of Israel is taken into captivity by the Assyrians and they become enslaved all over again. But because of that split of the two kingdoms back in 925 B.C., the path of the kings of God's people, and there we see Manasseh did evil, Amma did evil, Josiah did right, right? Hey, Josiah did right. He was a good king. He honored God. He led his people toward joy and guide God. But then he died. And then Jehoahaz did evil, Jehoiakim did evil, Jehoachim did evil, Zedekiah did evil. And then that half of the kingdom went into captivity in Babylon, and that was it. What? God's people are back where they started when we left them at the end of the book of Judges. Kingless, 
hopeless, bent on destruction. It's hundreds of years, and some 40 kings later, they are literally back in the same broken boat. Why? Why? Because none of those kings was the forever kind of king that could truly lead people to safety and joy. None of those, we need a king, but none of those kings were strong enough or good enough to bring God's people peace and wholeness. And so yet again, there was no king in Israel. And the people did what was right in their own eyes, and it led them where it leads us, to pain and enslavement and destruction. We need a king who can lead us. We need a king who can save us. We need a forever king. So we keep turning the page and watch. Watch this. After over a thousand years from the end of the book of Judges, after all the pain and the destruction throughout the centuries of the kingdoms, after all the failed kings, after 586 years of slavery and despair, after 400 years where God seemed to be silent between the last chapter of the Old Testament and the first chapter of the New Testament, if you turn the page one more time, you read this, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of King David. And if you skip down to verse 12, you see this. After the deportation to Babylon, which we just talked about, Jeconiah, the king that was deported to Babylon, was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Iliad, and Iliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, the Methan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband. Merry Christmas! <laughs> Merry Christmas! Joy to the world! The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. The darkest days in the Bible turn into the Christmas story. Because if you keep turning the... God himself came to earth in the line of the kings. We have a king. We have a king. We have a Messiah king. We have a rescuing king. We have a forever king. We have an unfailing king. We have a loving king. We have a holy, holy, holy king. We have a creator king who made everything. And so he knows everything and how to lead us rightly. He knows how to be our king. His name, by the way, is Jesus. <laughs> and we're not done turning pages. Because the reason we have this king is because if you turn a few more pages to Matthew 27, verse 37, you see Jesus Christ hanging on a cross beneath a sign that said, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Our king was dying in our place so that he could be our king forever. The people that day thought the title was a joke. They thought they were crowning him with thorns and shame, but they were crowning Jesus with victory 
and kingly authority forever. Jesus, by being the king, the king that died for his people rather than the other way around, people who on our own can only find destruction by ourselves, by being that he became the king that can lead his people away from destruction, lead his people to life. Jesus, by raising from the dead, became the king that will never die. He is the king that we need. You need someone to protect you from yourself. If you don't have a relationship with God right now through the work of Jesus, you need somebody, somebody who can provide for you a situation that does not lead to destruction. You need someone who can say to your heart with wisdom, this is the way, walk in it. You need a king whose reign leads to life and not death. And you can have that king in Jesus. Christians, Jesus is the king you need. Every day. This means lining up your life with the king on the cross. Man, it can be so hard sometimes because I'll only, I won't make this the universal plural. I'm dumb. And I can... I can absolutely say, you know what, I'll be the king today and it's your turn again tomorrow. Line up everything in your life with the king on the cross. Submit your decisions to King Jesus, the Christmas king. This means wrapping up your life in God's word so that it's not a matter of what seems right in your eyes, but what does... What does my king compel me to do? Real, just let me give you the, the real practical image to finish with on this. Tomorrow morning, sit down in a chair and remember King Jesus in the manger and on the cross for you. The king that you need. And then open your Bible and read his words of life for you. Read the words of the king and obey. Sit and surrender before the king. Jesus is your forever king. He's your tomorrow morning king that we need. So Christians, I'm going to ask you as we sing in a moment to just stay where you are. I want you to, I want you to talk to the king. In your heart, bow down and say, where is it that I'm being like an ancient Israelite and trying to do what is right in my own eyes? He's not out there like, man, get on my page because I'm... He doesn't want you to walk yourself to destruction. Jesus is the king who loves you to the death. But if you do not have a relationship with God, I want to invite you to come forward today. We would love... One of our pastors, one of our prayer team members would love to help you give your life to King Jesus, the King of Christmas, the best thing that has ever happened to any of us. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll have a time of worship and response together. Father, I thank you for the beauty of your word, but not just the beauty of your word, because it points us to the beauty of your gospel, your good news, that even though we are sinners... Even though we are dead in our sins, even though we are sheep that go, go astray, even though we have plans that seem right to us, that end in death, you so loved us 
that before we had ever messed it all up, you planned to come in the line of kings to be the ruler and the rescuer that we need. And if there's anyone here, Father, right now who doesn't have a relationship with you, God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that you would help them to receive your perfection in place of their imperfection, your life in, in replace to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for coming. Thank you for living and dying and rise again. I pray that you would help our hearts to be melted in the name of Christ. Amen.